0: Welcome to the Troublesome Terps, the podcast about the things that keep interpreters up at night. And somebody who wasn't kept up tonight is Jonathan Downey from Scotland, where everything is quiet and sleeping. Isn't that right, Jonathan?
1: Yeah, it seems like for some reason everyone decided to go to sleep. It must have been the change of clock recently. Now, there could not be Troublesome Terps without the only Troublesome Terps host who has been on every single episode, (laughs) the man himself, our editor-in-chief, our organizer in Doodle, Alex Drexel.
2: (laughs) Good evening, everyone. Good, good to see you all. Uh, And yeah, yeah, it's a good bragging night. the only one being on all the episodes, but there you go. I'm the guy who has to record everything.
3: <laughs> yeah, well, that now you can take this acronym with you, uh, Alexander. BFOQ. That's a Qualified Occupational Qualification. You've been every episode.
2: <laughs> exactly. Speaking of qualifications, we have a qualified industry researcher with us, which is the wonderful Sarah Hickey. Good evening, Sarah.
4: Hey, everyone. Um, good to be here. Um, Today, we're going to talk about a particularly troubling topic, and that is interpreting in conflict zones and crisis regions. Um, we all know that interpreting is taxing enough as it is, but interpreters working in these conditions take it to a whole new level. One who has a lot of experience in this area is our special guest today, Antonio Posada. Welcome Tony.
3: Hello, how are Yay, you? Hey. Come on. Hey.
4: <laughs> 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 Uh, yeah, good to have you with us. Um, maybe. Great to be here. We can uh, kick this off and you can tell us a little bit about your, um, yourself, your, your background as an interpreter.
3: Well, uh, you could call me the reluctant interpreter because uh, it's always been a question of somebody noticing the gift and me saying, well, yeah, yeah, whatever, I'll get to it. Uh, I started out with my father, and then uh, he was like my first mentor. He was a polyglot. And then uh, the headmaster of the school where I finished high school, who was also another polyglot. And, and they, they noticed something. Um, I eventually was uh, very shy about my Spanish because I'd, uh, I'd grown up in South Dakota and I didn't, I didn't speak Spanish. My father wanted to learn English really well, so we never spoke Spanish at home, which was really absurd. When I came back to Colombia, having been born here, everybody in school called me uh, gringo. My brother and I, I have a younger brother, we were both the gringos to this day. And um, I ended up going to school in Canada, in UBC, and I studied Spanish. <laughs> so um, so that's, that's, that's where I got started. And uh, throughout my career, which spans, you know, 30 odd years or something, I've, I've lost count. Uh, I always fell into things, which, which is uh, perhaps something that you were thinking of asking. I don't know. You know, how, do, how did I get into this? And I, I just, I would fall into things. When I first got into school, it was an all boys school. And that was a new thing for me because I'd never gone to an all boys school. You know, I went to public school in South Dakota and and uh, over here, it was an all-boys school, like very European in style. And um, the only point of communication was the pop songs of the day. My classmates who had no, no patience for me found that I could translate the words to the songs of the day. And in those days, it was
2: BGS Gees and... Um, do some soundtrack music right here.
3: there's <laughs> <laughs>
2: right. yeah, a lot of bgs and 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 then
3: and then some of the some of the more sensitive spirits went for cat stevens
2: good choice oh, no.
3: uh so i i found myself uh i found myself training uh sight translation translating uh song lyrics and then and then i started I started moving into into uh, translating or interpreting uh, because of need. My father would just like lasso me in to help him out with a client. I'd pick a, a, one of my father's clients up at the airport or I'd help out uh, doing like legal translations because uh, he was an attorney. And, uh, and then from there on, it just became a question of translating or interpreting when it suited me, which meant that it interested me, that it, it, it allowed me to to scratch an itch I had, if it was something interesting, then I would do it. And it was only in the last actually mm, twenty years that I I just went full in, and um, and and this is what I do, you know. That's this is what I do. I, I do a lot of text. I do. Uh, we have a, a little company, a little service company here in, in Bogota. Um, we do a lot of like massive text projects. You know, eight hundred thousand words in a 10 15 day delivery uh we put together teams in four or five countries uh, 40 people uh we'll take uh, uh and we'll do OCR and DTP on on text so that we can process through through you know the usual tools whatever people have whether it's uh uh, uh Trados or or Wordfast or whatever and then the interpretation simply came from that you know um What's the biggest business in the country? What's the biggest client in the country? You end up working for that, you know, for that eight hundred pound gorilla. No pun intended, because we're going to talk about gorillas, but different kinds. And uh, in Colombia, oh, <laughs>
2: <Yeah, I> <laughs> <laughs> Tony, what would you say is the is the percentage of of translation and interpreting in in your sort of for your business, and is that more or less representative of your market, sort of in terms of the share of both?
3: Uh, hard to say. I think, in, in, in my case, uh, during COVID times, interpreting has, has gotten bigger. Mm-hmm. Because people it's gotten seem, bigger. You know, That's interesting. Say, yes, it's gotten bigger. It's gotten bigger because a lot of clients uh, who were not into doing uh, on-site events uh, suddenly found that they had no, no, no meetings, no travel, no nothing. And they they had you know they had to uh, allow people in their organizations uh, to, to to sit in on meetings and and they needed interpretation. So it's gotten pretty pretty crazy. Uh, I've I've uh, you know normally I would I would have uh, maybe an event a week, and uh, nowadays. Uh, I'll have, I'll have things like every day and sometimes stuff overlapping. I'll start, you know, a a two hour event in the morning and I'll do a four hour event in the afternoon with a different client. Mm. Um, We, we had an event with the uh, with, um, I forget the name. It's an international organization. They run a, uh, I'll I'll look it up. Uh, They run a, uh, an event on intellectual property, Colombia was hosting this year, and they were going to host it in a really nice city in in, in uh, the Caribbean, Cartagena. And they had to cancel, and they canceled twice. And they finally said, "It's too important; we need to do this event." So they did it remotely. It was a five day event uh, with Portuguese, Spanish, and English, and people from all over the world, of course. So that was that was pretty brutal because that week I also had three other events, so I I couldn't be in 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 all places at the same time. So we had to get in, you know, put together a team of like nine people and we would rotate depending on uh, expertise or whatever, but it's been, it's been really crazy. I've I've been very surprised by how, how massive it's become. And since I do a lot of tech, that's one of the things I've always been very inclined on my private side. I'm, I'm inclined towards, uh, you know, like literature, history. I like a lot of economics uh, but on my like more client side, I've always been involved in tech. I started out in medicine, but I didn't really like doctors that much and the <laughs> environment and medical conferences. Yeah, no, for real. And I ended up going to tech because um, you know, tech in general, you know, uh, it, it could have been I worked I worked for Procter and Gamble, uh, in their their plants, you know, installing when they're installing new equipment. Uh, with all the oil companies in Colombia, I think very few that I haven't worked with. And uh, and then with uh, with computer companies uh, and 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 with that kind of technology, computer technology, which you know, and, and those those two those two strands are the ones that have that have put me in in, in harm's way in, in certain moments.
0: Talk about foreshadowing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, you, you've already alluded pretty much to it. So how exactly did you end up working in these like dangerous, I, I wouldn't, I don't know if you would call it conflict zones or crisis regions, but like in these more dangerous environments, is it due to some of those clients or just the, the market that you're based in is, you know, if you're going out into the field, working with the clients, is it already more dangerous than, I don't know, for example, in, in, in Europe, do you think? So how, what would you, what would you say?
3: Well, you know, that's 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 an interesting question, because um, what is a conflict zone? When we talk about a conflict zone, I I start thinking about Colombia and I'm thinking, okay, let's let's look at, you know, 60 years of history. Bottom line is that this is a country that has always been in conflict. It's different in terms of of uh, the linguists that work in like Iraq or Afghanistan or things like that which feed a kind of slight, a kind of like a, uh, a, uh, a morbid, uh, interest in, in like the press or even the general, because you're, you're embedded with soldiers and you might be going from door to door, uh, looking for rebels or whatever. Uh, these guys end up getting shot and killed a lot of times. Uh, they get they get left hung out to dry by by uh, occupying forces uh, a lot of times, if not most of the time. Over here, it's different. Over here, you tend to fall into it because you're lulled into a false sense of security because you're living in a city like Bogota. Bogota's got maybe whatever nine million people. Uh, it's a modern city. You've got it. You've got you know good restaurants, whatever. Uh, but you might find that. Um, a 30 minute flight away from Bogota on a private plane and you're in, in an actual conflict zone with actual guerrillas, uh, with actual army operations. And that's how somebody like me ends up in the wrong place at the wrong time. You guys remember BP? Uh, of course, uh, uh, Jonathan, Jonathan would know a lot about BP because he uh, very active in Scotland and whatnot. Uh, BP sold their operations in Colombia to a company called Talisman Energy and uh, another piece to the state oil company. I, uh, I get into this, I get picked up in a, uh, in a bulletproof Toyota and taken to, uh, to an airfield, well, to the, to the, to the airfield in Bogota, to the El Dorado. It has like a separate private aviation area. And uh, we get put into a, a Beach King Air uh, 200 uh, for like eight, 10 passengers. And I'm sitting there, we're heading towards, uh, Vichada department. It's, uh, on the border with Venezuela. And literally as, as we're landing, there's, there's a, uh, um, an army colonel at the front of the plane. He's standing right next to the pilot, right behind the pilots. And he's asking the pilots, you know, captain, would you please fly over that way? So he could show uh, some some uh, security people that come in. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, this colonel is the brother of a friend of mine. He's the son of a very famous general that was that was well known for 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 being, you know, out there in the field, going after the 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 guerrillas." And then I realized that I had been interpreting in a meeting that had been led by that same colonel about 30 days prior when 23 contractors had been kidnapped in the area we were about to land in.
0: Well, that's just fantastic.
3: (laughs) (laughs) So they kidnapped 23 people. They were doing seismic. There were a couple of engineers, and they were were let go or rescued or whatever. I, I don't remember what happened there. But imagine landing in this remote airfield and realizing that this is the place where it happened. And why the hell am I here and why didn't I realize that this is what I was getting myself into. So we land, we get out of the plane and immediately you notice that something's amiss because there's a a, a three meter berm around the whole landing strip and there's a, a machine gun turret on every corner and there's soldiers all over the place. And we go into one of the Quonset huts for a briefing and there's an army major with his long gun, you know, whatever an AR-15, whatever the hell they use, and he's he's sitting in a little in a little bench, and he's talking about uh, subversive activities in the area, and there's a guerrilla operating that area called uh, at the time Negro Casio, and he the major helpfully informs us that uh, the guy has 400 men under under arms in the in the vicinity, but they've chased they've managed to chase him south. And as he's doing the briefing, the shots start to ring and everybody hits the deck. It's not like in the movie where, where, you know, where they say, hit the ground and they're shooting. No, you, you hear shots, you go to the ground. Pum, 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 pum. And we we're, we're there on the ground for the longest time and, and, and waiting for the all clear. And finally, we get a sort of all clear where we say, okay, uh, we've chased them away, but uh, you guys are going to have to leave. So that was our first experience. That was my first experience uh, under 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 gunfire. I'd had other experiences again with oil companies.
0: Wait, Tony, let me just let me just jump in here. I have so many questions. I have like a lot of questions. Go ahead.
3: Shoot away. No pun intended.
0: (laughs) So at any point, did James Bond show up? Because this sounds like straight out of a movie. No, the the James.
3: No, I mean the SAS, the SAS, and the uh, Australian Special Forces guy and the Colombian, the Colombian Colonel. Were all the all the uh, James Bondy looking people you need? They sinewy arms, uh, ripped, uh, short hair, uh, muscular, uh, totally unfazed. The the thing that freaked me out is that I'm tall, and we were in a we were in a small place about twelve men. The, the SAS guy and the Australian Special Forces guys were tall, but they managed to hit the deck faster than me, uh, of course. Mm. I, I, could, I, couldn't, I couldn't lower my right knee. And when we got up, uh, some, some guy there that was with the uh, oil company said, man, you're lucky. And I said, why? He says, because a guy uh, as tall as you uh, about three weeks ago was in the same position and a bullet came through and hit him in the knee. I <laughs> said, you got to be kidding! <laughs> Kid <kidding> you not? <laughs> what the hell? I did manage to record something on my cell phone because I said, "This is literally a moment when I could I could die." So I'm going to record something on my cell phone. You know, just film something around here, take a couple of pictures, and say we're under we're under fire, and we're going to wait and see what happens.
0: So, so before you went on this on this private plane, before any of that happened, how much did you know? what you were headed into like did they tell you okay today we're going to be talking about this sort of topic like did did you know anything at all or was it just like okay meet us here we'll put a bag over your head and off we go
3: zero if i had been if i had been more alert i was i was lulled because i was working with a group of people that were super fun and we would had a great day doing like office interpretation you know talking to people and whatnot we'd had a great lunch Everybody was laughing. We were having a great time. At the end of the day, before the day of the flight, somebody came up to me and said, would you please sit at that desk and we want you to sign this. And it was,
1: (laughs) yeah, there you go. Be careful what you sign when you go into everything. Oh, yes. (laughs) It
3: It was a waiver uh if anything happens we don't know you life liberty and limb life liberty and limb uh <laughs> you are undertaking this at your own risk but as as the story goes i was young and i was but i wasn't <laughs> young i actually wasn't young at the time <laughs> i guess i was uh, checking notes here to see uh when this when this place uh that event was uh in 2008 which was an eventful year um because of a lot of things that happened with uh with uh guerrillas paramilitaries and drug traffickers so i just signed the thing and i went and then um i came back and uh i kept quiet about it uh i went to have dinner with some friends and uh A friend of mine we went out for a smoke and he says you look kind of strange today you're kind of quiet and i said this is what happened and he said well don't tell your wife (laughs) 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 but but there's there's well she'll find out
0: about it now the cat's out of the bag
3: (laughs) yeah no no she knows she knows there's there's there's, (laughs) yeah no there's a coda to the story because i i I was asked to to go with them on another trip to southern colombia to putumayo department the next day and I said guys I can't uh, I'm busy that day and I was I'm busy not dying what no but listen you know what happened was that uh they went they went to Putumayo and uh a guerrilla group uh a, a little guerrilla unit kidnapped uh a couple of Chinese engineers and their interpreter
4: oh my god what the heck
3: yeah yeah you know just because you know you're, you're in a city you go out to the airport you go out to the, there's the thing that's happened with Colombia's conflict is that it's not inside the cities for the most part. Mm. There have been moments when they, you know, they'll set off a bomb somewhere, but it's not in the cities exactly. So people think, well, it's, it's, they're not shooting in my direction. It's fine. But so I wanted to qualify what we mean by a conflict zone. This is a place that has been in conflict. It's a mm. different conflict. But there's still shooting going on, and uh, there's still people getting hurt because of the conflict. And I think that what's happened to me is that I've tended to see the aftermath.
0: Right. That sounds pretty conflicted to me. Yeah. Um, So, so how do you prepare yourself? Like, well, I guess you don't really prepare yourself. What do you do after the fact? With you know, how do you like decompress? Because I mean, you've done it again since then. So it seems that you've kind of processed through it. So how do you how do you go about that?
3: Uh, I do it through music. I do it through cooking. Uh, sometimes when it's really bad, I'll just, I'll just keep quiet. My wife knows well enough. Just give me space. I just right. down and, and, and decompress. Uh, I think the difficult thing is if you know from the get-go that you're going into an actual you know, shooting war, that's a different kind of preparation. In my case, uh I would get like a call from uh, UNDP. Uh, they were going to visit a certain part of Colombia from the coast, the Caribbean coast, into like uh, uh, a place called um, Cincelejo. Uh It's a city in in a in a uh, like a flat plain. Uh, they they do a lot of um, a lot of livestock, you know, cattle ranching. But it's been a very conflictive area. A friend of mine used to say that that was Colombia's uh, Ho Chi Minh Trail. It's been a place that has been peopled by by um, smugglers, smugglers of all sorts of things, of things and people for the past 400 years. And it's also been an area that's been that's been riven by conflict, by by actual conflict between drug traffickers, paramilitaries, guerrillas and so forth. In those cases, it's much more difficult because what will happen is that you'll come into a place like a a, a town called Carmen de Bolívar. Uh, We drive in, in a, uh, in a United Nations uh, Land Rover. Uh, they taken the flags off because uh, something had happened to a, to a United Nations vehicle earlier sometime that month or something. And we go into Carmen de Bolívar. Carmen de Bolívar had, uh, had experienced a massive, horrible paramilitary attack. And as we go into the town, I see like the, the chipped, uh, pieces of, of, uh, of buildings. And I turned to, to, to the, uh, UNDP guy here in Bogota and, and he, he nods, you know, yeah, those are bullet holes. And there were sandbags, uh, all around the, uh, all, all around the town city hall. And we were going to meet with, uh, with, uh, a group of, of civilians from the town that we're going to talk about their experience with the paramilitary attack. And that's what you're not prepared for. You're not prepared for the emotion of the stories, and these are people that have been silenced uh, in many ways. They've been silenced by bullets. They've been silenced by neglect, government neglect. And when somebody from the outside comes in, they want to talk, and the stuff they talk about is just absolutely horrifying. And it's very difficult to decompress from that. Hence, you know, when Sarah, when 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 I saw Sarah's post and talking about um, vicarious uh, trauma.
0: Mm.
3: that holy crap that's exactly what I've been feeling you know when you hear these stories and you have to convey that mm. it, it, can be, it can be extraordinarily difficult on that particular trip we ended up in uh, a town that is uh, in the far west of Bogota far 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 west corner of Bogota it's uh, called Facatativa and it, it was at the time a place that a lot of displaced people would come to and um, we interviewed a girl, maybe about 13, who was too damn wise for her years. She'd been through too damn much. And we were in a, in a school that she went to. And the, uh, there's a, a Dutch, a Dutch uh, expert from, from UNDP was asking the questions. And she asked, well, what is your day like? And she describes coming down from, from, from the house she lived in and uh she she made a like a very pointed note that she had to watch out for the men you know this was a this was a a a girl only 13 but she already knew what the stakes were for a girl so you know there's a there's a different point of view uh with regard to conflict when when you're getting it in in that in that way you know when when Mm. is telling you uh without you know she she Clearly, uh, was incredibly resilient, but I I had a problem at some point uh, with my interpretation because I was just I was just choking up. I was you know I was thinking, this is this is horrendous. She was proudly showing her school, and it was just a really scrubby little school with a really a limp little tree in the middle, and she was so proud of the garden and everything. And I was just ready to I was just ready to cry because it was like, who knows what she's been through. That this place we're in, which is which is which is uh, terrible, is is excellent for her. She's talking about how the, the older children save the uh, the snack that they get from the government to give to the, the younger kids who don't don't have enough to eat at their you know in their homes. And these are all displaced people. They're 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 lost in their own country. You know. And that's that's what's really hard about that kind of, uh, of of conflict because you're you're seeing the aftermath, you're seeing the results of uh, of, of failed government policy, of uh, of uh, violence, and 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 when you have to convey that, it's uh, it's very difficult. It really is.
2: Yeah, Tony. One thing I've been wondering while I listened to you was: do, do you sometimes find yourself having to? Mm, I don't know. Change your interpreting technique, or maybe um, do things a little bit differently than we are getting told at university, or you know, different from what the textbooks say on on how to do interpreting in terms of you know neutrality and that kind of stuff. Do you find yourself sometimes oh. having to <laughs> adapt uh, in order to get through the situation?
3: That's a, that, that's that's a uh, that's a very that's a very very uh, thoughtful question. Let me think here a second. Uh, the short answer is yes. The <laughs> okay. short answer is yes, and I think that the current the current problem uh, the the writer Corey Doctorow says we're in a in a an epistemological crisis, and I think that's true. Uh, I think that we're at a point where you have to wonder if neutrality is actually the way to go. I mean, if you if you're going to that kind of interpretation, where you you're just droning, you're saying, for reasons to do with the spread and intensity of armed conflicts since the early 1990s. No, uh, somebody there, uh, a, a, uh, a person from a small town is on the verge of tears and you, I feel, do have to convey the level of, of, of hurt, despair as best, as best as, as hurt and despair uh, as best you can.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, you do have to find a way to protect yourself. But I think at this point in time, you can't be neutral. And I, I, I remember describing to Sarah a different kind of conflict, a different kind of problem, which was working with, with mining companies, mining companies are, are experts at, uh, at, um, at, at putting lipstick on pigs, you know, when you hear, when you hear an extractive industry, uh, representative talking about sustainable practices about environment, I have been to these mines. I have seen these huge holes. I have seen the slag heaps. Give me a break. The environment is going to be destroyed. And, and I, I, I had to stop myself once with uh, and I don't care about saying their name, uh, was with uh, with um, uh, BHP Billiton. We're going to. They were going to uh, change the course of the Rancheria River in uh, the Cerreón mine, uh, where they where they mine uh, a really uh, high quality coal. It's a, it's an open pit mine, and uh, in that case, I was not an interpreter. I was actually going to do a voiceover for a corporate video that was explaining why there was no environmental issue with the river. And Guajira, the Wahida Peninsula is a desert and it's a place that I particularly love in Colombia that I've, I've been to many times. And I said, hell no, I'm not gonna do this. I just stood up and I said, I'm not going to do this. I will not condone this kind of, this kind of thing. That's BS. You're going to hurt the indigenous people there. You're going to ruin uh, who knows what. in in the environment because you're going to move the river so you can get to the coal underneath it. Forget it. So, you know, to, to your question, Alexander, no, I think, I think the time is long past being neutral. We are are where we are because of uh, a false sense of, of of a need to be neutral. Mm -hmm. I remember one of your shows, uh, I, I don't know which one was talking about, a uh, um, uh, performative or interpretive or whatever—I I don't know you had some sort of technical term for it. I forget. When that was you're entertainment, the entertainment. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. You know, when when I'm I'm, I'm with uh, with a multi-level marketing company, and, and 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 there I am doing consecutive, but uh, they they play ABBA's "I Have a Dream," and there I am, you know, with a candle. I have a dream. <laughs> you're all going to lose all of your money and give it to me. That's a job. Exactly. That's a job. So, yeah, no, I think, I think you, you, that's why I always go back to my favorite word. No, you do have to stop and say, okay, I have to stop and listen and ask a lot of questions. What is this? Where is it? What is it for? Who does it benefit? Uh, Because, because uh, as I, as I told Sarah, The first time we talked, um, I think what's, what's concerned me the most about all these things relating to conflict and to the aftermath of conflict is that you can find yourself as an interpreter very easily in a position of being the facilitator, the enabler for things that will haunt you for sure.
4: I remember that from when we talked, I thought that was an excellent point because, um, yeah, of course, we're always told, you know, um, that neutrality is important and technically we're just the ones relaying what other people are doing. But of course, there comes a point in extreme situations like the ones uh, you were in, you know, where it goes beyond that and the interpreter is no longer just neutral, like by, you know, like you said, you become a facilitator and then you have to make a personal choice there. Oh,
1: sure, sure, sure. I mean, there's a, there's a couple of things going on in my head. One, I've written quite a lot on neutrality, so I'm going to park that because I could do a a, a long <laughs> rant on, on. On, on why neutrality sucks. <laughs> um, but the, the question that I was going to ask, Tony, is, you know, it's almost certain that you're not the only interpreter in Colombia going into these environments. Do you ever talk to other interpreters with similar experiences? Is there any sort of association or grouping or training that you do together to help each other because no one else can quite understand what it's like to interpret there.
3: Okay. Two stories to answer your question. And it's a great question. Uh, story number one, there was a uh, United Nations, uh, cities event in Bogota and we set up a little group and I was talking with, with a group of friends and there were a couple of uh, you know, friends, uh, French interpreters And uh, we were talking about some of the stuff that we just heard some of these politicians say. And we were all in like very, very vehement disagreement. And one of my colleagues uh, and a friend for many years said, you know what, I was in the booth uh, about three months ago and there was I can't remember what Colombian politician was was talking And he started saying something, and she said from the booth, he's lying. He's lying. What he's saying is not true. Yes, you can can spread those. Yeah, just open those eyes wide, and I'm going to put
2: eye drops in there. I mean, we've all all said that, maybe just not on mic.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Right. No, but I mean… No, but, but, but to, to, to Sarah's question, I mean, you, you do have to ask yourself if, if you come to a point where something breaks, where, where you, where you, where you cannot really, I mean, you, you, you're, what are you if you're just taking money and you're, and you're, yes, it's your job. Yes, you were trained to do it this way. Yes, yeah, you're trained to be neutral. But suddenly, uh, I, I'm trying to remember the name of the interpreter who was interpreting for Trump in, in Finland. And and all the brouhaha about about that uh, particular moment with Putin, and uh, and and about somebody saying that they're going to subpoena uh,
2: her her notes,
3: mm. and I laughed. Oh, yeah, go ahead, subpoena subpoena uh, a consecutive interpreter's note. Mm. Good luck with that.
2: Yeah, we did a special episode on that. Yeah,
3: <laughs> I know, I know. That's why I mentioned it. But I was thinking, I was thinking, I was, I w- I felt so much for her because I was thinking. What do you do S- sitting behind this idiot and having to, to interpret that? And I know I know State Department interpreters. I know these people, hyper professional, hyper competent, hyper well-trained linguists having to sit behind somebody and listen to these things. It's, 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 a, it's a tough call. I think that's something that Dr. Downey will have to write about.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Get to work, Jonathan.
1: Go for it, Jonathan. <laughs> I, I'm it's just tough. letting you take this one. I'll take
2: one for the team, but go
3: ahead. Go but, ahead.
1: But I think one of the things that's really jumping out at me is when I was doing my PhD, I had a supervisor by the name of Graham Turner, and he's a sign language specialist. And he says that we have to move away from thinking interpreters are just relaying meaning and realizing that most of the time when we interpret that we're not relaying meaning, we're, help people, we're helping people create meaning. You know they negotiating what this means and negotiating, and you kind know, your story is about you know when you know the mining companies coming in, and you know what they're going to do, there is a an ethical responsibility that arises if you're going to decide well I, you know I don't care I'm just going to take my money and go, um it's. I mean, some of it, I guess, is, is beforehand. How much of an option do you get? You know, how much briefing do you get when you go? Uh, is this BHP Belton doing HR, or do you know? All oh, right, this is they're trying to re—they're trying to move this river. Do you always know exactly what's going to happen, or is it just BHP Belton's on the phone? Can you come and interpret for us?
3: Well, Jonathan, I think I think that the honest answer to that question is: I'm 60 years old, and I'm in a different position in my life. I mean, this is this is a. Uh, Something you know, uh, if I could just remember the Shakespeare quote, uh, man, "Many lives" or something like that. Uh, I was a different man when I was thirty. I was a different man. when I was forty. I had different needs. I had different. Uh, I had different stresses. Uh, at age sixty, I'm. 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 I can look back and say, yeah, no. When I was when I was forty, uh, BHP Billiton called and I would just jump on a plane and go. But it's after the fact, when you start thinking about things, that that this comes into play. So I think that one of the big problems is is, is making it too academic in the sense of what you're conveying, what is meaning and all that. I think we have, to, we have to become a little bit more tribal in the good sense. And we do have a right to demand more information. And I think we do have to take personal responsibility for, for working for certain types of clients. So. Uh, the the bottom line is I no longer work for those types of companies because because you you know I've, I've come to a point where I say no. no 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 if you're gonna if you're gonna wreck some 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 part of the country that that I absolutely love and you're telling people that uh, according to your metrics it's going to be fine you know it's not because I don't know if you guys will agree with me that. I think something that has never been, to my knowledge, spoken of academically is the fact that we're not, you know, in some high-minded sort of way, uh, conveying uh, meaning, helping to reconstruct yada, yada, yada. We are flies on the wall. And like flies, we have compound eyes and we have like this enormous, uh, apparatus antennae that are listening, we're we're catching all sorts of meaning from from physical expression, from body language, from tone of voice, you know, the good old register and whatnot. We're capturing, but as flies on the wall, we're capturing other deeper things. Like when somebody comes in and talks about um, faith in extractive industries, I went to an event that was all about faith in the extractive industries and, and, and my head exploded.
2: That's what they called it?
3: <laughs> yes. These were actual priests talking about uh, community outreach and whatnot. And I was thinking, you know, I, I, I try not to become cynical, but uh, these companies will go in and negotiate with any, any government in the world. If things were not that way, nobody would have drove for oil in Libya under Gaddafi. Just saying. So uh, you can paint it any way you want, but we're at a point in in the history of the world where 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 positions have to be taken because the consequences of not doing it are are massive.
4: Yeah, I like the point you're making there about uh, you know sometimes we. Often, I find in the interpreting community, we talk about interpreting in too much of an academic sense, you know, the way it's supposed to be, the way it's intended to be, um, you know, but often like in in situation like like yours or other people I spoke to as well, it's not that perfect. It's not laid out like in university. The situations are far extremer, like your situation, or I interviewed someone who works in... um, Um, pediatric care clinic with lots of kids that are, you know, about to die and things like that. And it's just not uh, the same, right? How can you just talk about the level of neutrality that's needed? And, And it sounds like, you know, the human side of the interpreter is often forgotten and it's sure partially we're supposed to be the middleman the fly in the wall but we are, we can we are humans so we cannot fully take that human element away right right, mm-hmm.
1: right that's what right. we talked
4: about about with the effect on the interpreters or and the lack of care i, I remember i think in some uh, missions you were saying as well everyone on the mission. Uh, Or sometimes everyone in the hospital as well, the other person I interviewed, um, they all got this aftercare, you know, to deal with trauma, except for the interpreter, who was maybe even more involved because they process the emotions as well, you know, through them.
3: Let me ask you guys a question. You're in Europe, and uh, you would think that Europe has uh, much more sense of those types of things. Uh, A lot of times I find that here in Colombia, the interpreter, we're just the help. just brought in and there's your booth and just do your thing um, I don't know if it's the same way in Europe and, and that would explain why mm. nobody cares what happens with you after the fact
4: Well, I personally just and this is more just from people I've talked to due to my job in uh, research I've heard this from a lot of people around the world that they are complaining that the interpreter is often just seen as the little the little helper you know <laughs> that's it <laughs>
1: Uh, so I, I moved my YouTube channel from just being me talking to being interviews. And the first interview I did with, was with another PhD researcher, uh, Dr. Jules Dickinson. Mm-hmm. And she does uh, what's called professional supervision of interpreters, which is very like clinical supervision of doctors. And they were saying with sign language interpreters, they can go from, you know, conference on whatever one day to the police going someone says to take a rape statement the next and, and literally, it's the same interpreter doing whatever because there's, there's a shortage in every country in the world. Yeah. And so the sign language interpreting community in the UK is slowly learning, and in some places learning quite quickly, that you can't expect interpreters to be able to be in really emotional, really difficult situations and not have support. But on the other hand, the conversation that they're having is, well, who picks up the tab? Oh. And, and this is this is the, the, the more... The trickier conversation where if you have an interpreter with an employer, then you can just say to the employer, your tab, you know, your duty of care, deal with it. If you have a freelancer, then it becomes more complex. Um, and certainly the, there are projects I've done where we've, um, I did a project with the Scottish government, with any, with our health service, the police, and with Heriot-Watt University. I was on the project team and we built a support package for new interpreters. And the bit of the support package that they said they've got the most value of was that professional supervision that started with okay let's talk about what resilience is and how you build it before you get into the difficult situations we limited what they could go into for for good reason but this is this is the question of the interpreting world in itself is only just waking up to to the issue, I know of two or three studies on emotional interpreting. There's probably a few more now, but I only know of two or three. But that's because I've been seeking this stuff out because of what I've been getting into with writing. Right.
3: No, and let me ask you a question. I think that um, the 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 big problem with regard to that is is uh, we're in a peculiar moment where you have large tech companies talking about the gig economy.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And, and, and I'm thinking of a moment where, you know, they would want us to all be on bicycles with a backpack, uh, suitably color, uh, you know, with, with, with the branding and whatnot. And we'd be carrying our, our, our portable um, booth in the back and, 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 uh, and headsets and whatever. And we don't exist. We're not actual employees. Uh, we just do the gig. We get paid with a credit card. Goodbye. Thank you very much. But it can't be that way. It can't be that way. And with uh, RSI, the way it's going right now, I think there's. Uh, we're going to have. I don't know if you you're familiar with the uh, Jeffrey Tubin incident in in the United States. He's uh, he's, uh, he's a writer, and he exposed himself on a Zoom meeting. I think we're all we're all at a breaking point. We're all at a breaking point, and we have, we have not we have not stopped to think. What happens when you're dealing with these types of things and you're in your own home uh, and, 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 and there's this clash of home and work at the same time? Uh, what about remote interpreting when you're in your home and your home life isn't perfect? You know, hmm. what happens if there's conflict in the neighbors, you know, with the neighbors, if somebody's yelling, uh, if there's street protests going on uh, two days ago, three or four days ago? I was getting ready for a session and uh, there was some sort of protest or something uh, in the front of, uh, of uh, my office and I couldn't hear. Hmm. So there's this to contend with. And there's of course no concern on the client side with regard to that. You know, it's like, you give me the service I'm paying for, period. Hmm.
1: The, I mean, the, this comes back to something that we mentioned earlier when I, I uh, helped draft the the ITI uh, position paper on remote interpreting there's actually a note here saying that we need internationally accepted standards for remote interpreting not just the technical stuff that we're used to but the psychological support the equipment the briefing I think we're coming to a place in interpreting where we're we're realizing almost too slowly that interpreters are human beings and that's yeah, big reveals <laughs> I, I could give you the history lesson as to why it's taken so long because I've written as to why it's taken so long but this is where we are and so because we're here this is where we need to start living right 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 no it's uh,
3: there's there's other things I think that the other thing the other interesting thing about about the being you know the lies on the wall is that you're collecting information from a wide variety of sources. And let me give you a little a little example um in 2008 i was working with the u.s department of state i was um i was outside of uh, the building where we were doing the training with a buddy of mine we were outside having to smoke. so a star lifter is landing and tom my friend turns to me and says a lot of star lifters come to bogotá i said no and we went to play golf that weekend on sunday and I was waiting for my, my U.S. friends that I'd invited to play. I was waiting for them. Um, and I was watching television. This guy comes in and he says, change the channel, change the channel. And I was watching something. So, so a, a waiter said, do you mind? I said, no, of course not. And that's when we found out that the Colombian Air Force had attacked a guerrilla camp in uh, Ecuador, just right at the edge of the border between Colombia and Ecuador, right across the border, actually, and it killed a major Colombian guerrilla commander, Raul Reyes. Anyway, that ended up with uh, people from Interpol coming to Colombia and the computers getting taken by Interpol for for, uh, very careful forensic analysis. And then Ron Noble, the uh, director of Interpol at the time, who's based in Lyon, came to Colombia to deliver Interpol's report on the computers. And I was the interpreter in the booth. You can actually find it on, on YouTube. There's, uh, there's recordings of that. Um, and it was, it, was, it was totally crazy because at the same time, Ecuador is, is threatening to close relations with Colombia. Venezuela uh, was doing the same thing. And then maybe two weeks later, I'm in a free trade agreement uh, interpreting and, uh, and Venezuela decides to leave the uh, Andean community which were negotiating a free trade agreement with the European union. So again, to what is conflict, it's there, it's there at all. And, 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 and to, and to Jonathan's point, nothing prepares you mentally from moving from seeing the actual computers that were collected in a raid and seeing the kinds, the kind of, of, of horrible person this gorilla was, he was terrible. He was a terrible, terrible person. Uh, to two weeks later, in a free trade agreement, and then having the, uh, the the group from Ecuador all stand up at the same time and leave the session, you know, it, it does things to your head. It really does.
1: If the interpreting community could, you know. If, if the interpreting community as a whole or the interpreting community in the West could do one thing for interpreters in those kind of zones, what would you want us to do collectively?
3: Well, I think, I think a good start would be to, uh, to ensure that the interpreters are afforded the same protections mm. that uh, the experts or the, uh, the people that are actually going to be into, you know, taken into the zone uh, are afforded. Uh, I've been in situations where uh, the the uh, the big wig gets uh, picked up in a, in an armored vehicle and the interpreter arrives, however, he or she may to the site. You know, so I think that that would be one thing uh, and, 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 and silly little things like, you know, uh, considering that if you have interpreters uh, that uh, they actually also need to eat. Because you'll you'll be in an event and it could be a it can be a challenging event and uh, and it's lunchtime and we'll say okay see you at one and I've been in places that are like in the middle of nowhere and you say well okay where is lunch
2: reminds me of my Russian interpreting teacher and she always recommended we bring some rice rice crackers wherever we go <laughs> you know just in case No, <laughs> uh.
3: <Well>, I mean. <laughs> Alexander, yes, that that you know, uh, but but uh, as a, as a joke, yeah, that's true.
2: I think she was being serious, actually, but no, yes,
3: yes, 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 no, but I mean, it, it has a certain humorous tinge to it, but um, I think that if you if you uh, fix the problem for them, you're not fixing the problem, if you know. So to to, to the question, what would I suggest that that you get the same conditions that you sleep in the same hotel because over here you'll have, uh, the person paying will say, well, we're going to stay at the, at the, uh, at the JW Marriott and, uh, we're not going to pay for your hotel. Yeah. You know, that's where the word no comes in. I'll say, no, I'm sorry. I'm not going or, or, uh, pay for the hotel and then send us the bill. No, you pay for the hotel. You pay for the plane tickets. You put me on the same plane on the same flight at the same time. Otherwise I can't do my job. I can't, I can't be your interpreter and have to deal with all these background logistics and do a good job. And I don't want to be in a position where I have to give you an excuse. No, I'm sorry. I have the special super saver flight and they canceled it and I can't go. You don't, you don't want to be put in that kind of situation. So I think that when you when you fix things uh, out of a, a good faith effort to to be helpful, I think you're not helping the wider effort of interpreters as as a whole, and that you know that means uh, that means rates, that means uh, just general conditions, the fact that you need to be able to have you know to, 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 to you be able to, to to take a break, to take a step away from the table. Uh, things like, for example, when, when, when meetings uh, run long mm. and, and if it's uh, some high power negotiation or something, they don't care, but you can be wrecked. I mean, if you've been working straight for eight hours, switching over and it's like a really contentious type of negotiation or something, or, or, or it's uh, the, the types of things that I've done with, uh, with like UNDP or, or visiting uh, visiting um, an area that was formerly controlled by the guerrillas, which was like mind blowing. We went to this to this village where there's there's a dam in uh, Caldas Department called Miel, on the honey, and um, they were they were they were looking at sustainable hydropower. So one of the things they needed to do was to interview uh, people in villages and ask men, women, and children uh, what their lives were like, how were they better, what had changed, and whatnot. And I was looking at this through my eyes as a, uh, in my eyes and my ears as an interpreter, but also as a Colombian who knew what the meaning of the place I was in was all about. Marquetalia had been the site of a major uh, guerrilla operation in, in, in the 60s, no, in the 50s, rather that started off the FARC, the FARC guerrilla group. And now it was, it was quote, pacified. It also been an area that had been uh, the seat of massive uh, drug trafficking uh, activities and massive guerrilla activity uh, and also massive paramilitary activity against the guerrillas. And what I noticed was that when you interviewed the men the men would say, "Oh, it was so much better in the past." And why was it better? Well, no, they would bring out they'd, they'd have these big parties and they'd roast a, they'd they'd roast a whole hog and there was beer for everybody. And then you'd go and interview the women and the look faces. The they were they were very reserved. They didn't want to talk. And you could tell that it had not been a party for them in the they may have been just serving drunk men food and drink, but I'm sure there's a lot worse than that. Hmm. It's, it's, it's a tricky, 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 tricky thing, you know, to deal with these issues. It's really tricky. I don't know if it's, it's if it's, if it's going to be easy to build standards. Uh, I, I think we need to, to, to set up uh, a series of, of things like uh, just making sure that uh Simple things get done that people get paid on time, uh, that they're standard for that, uh, that uh, that we uh, that we agree uh, without falling, you know, because it's funny thing you'll have. You'll have very large companies basically exercising monopoly powers. But if a group of, of uh, independent professionals such as ourselves try to organize collectively and set rates, then that's illegal monopoly. It's uh, illegal of competition. Acknowledging that the level of training and effort and practice and and preparation that this takes uh, needs to be paid commensurately. You know, it's not just uh, some, you know, hourly rate. And now with RSI, I imagine that you guys are getting the same kinds of requests that I'm getting. What's your hourly rate? Do you get, what if it's only 20 minutes? That kind of negotiation Mm -hmm. with a credit card without realizing that you have to prepare, you have to understand what it's going to be. You have to understand the terminology. You have to connect earlier. You have to do sound checks. You have to make sure your internet connection is fine. So, no, no, it doesn't work that way. And it's very difficult to find a, a way to, to, to establish those standards and to make them universal. And when we talk about competition, then you have, uh, I've, I've kind of surveyed very informally what happens in different countries and and you have different rates and you've, you'll, you'll suddenly find that uh if uh if a country is in dire straits uh translators and interpreters in that country will gladly work for pennies simply because there's nothing else happening now with with internet the internet enables those kinds of things so it actually enables more exploitation and it actually will enable uh odder forms of interpretation and 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 odder forms of situations of of um of trauma because who knows what we're gonna see over the internet you know Mm. it's interpretation what if it's what if it's uh nobody in the US wants to interview children in cages on the US border what if you do it over the over over zoom is it gonna be easier is it going to be less fraught is it going to be less emotional forget it Mm. it's not
4: yeah. I mean, it's the, from what you're saying and, you know, a few others I interviewed, it's just on the one hand, there's the maybe in some cases, like you said, you don't expect to get into those situations, but even if you do that, of course, the interpreters are not being taken care of the same way, you don't get the same protection, and then you especially don't get that aftercare as well. And the interpreters are just left to deal with, you know, with it themselves. So, I mean, do you have... Any recommendations for you know interpreters who still work in any of those either crisis regions or you know other situations that are extreme like that? What would you recommend to them from given your experience?
3: I would recommend a couple of things. I think that if you if you really think that uh, if you know if, you, if the position you take is that it's important work and and, and it certainly is important work. Uh, if you take the position that it's, uh, the work I want to do, yeah, sure. You want to do it. If you, if you take the decision that, uh, you are competent to do the work fine I would say you would have to prepare like, like, uh, like a free lung diver, you would have to have that level of, of, of concentration of preparation. I'd, I'd say if this is what you're going to do, uh, do yoga, meditate, and don't ignore the effects of this process, the effect, but also find a way to, to quiet your mind. Because one of the things that I've noticed is that in certain areas, in certain markets, you'll have this, this, uh, uh, attitude of, ah, that's, you'll get over it. Uh, you will have people who will, uh, fall in line and, and go all in and I see that a lot with people who do military type uh, translation interpretation they become one of the dudes that go out on these operations and they learn how to shoot the guns and and it turns into like this big joke but it's not a joke so uh, there's no easy answers to that I would say if, uh, if you're going to approach it in good faith meditate uh be very mindful of, of, of what you're doing, of the consequences of what you're doing. Uh, keep yourself separate from the client in the sense that you're called upon to interpret for a period of time. You do not, you don't know, you do not have to, you do not want to become the client. You want to become the person that is, adjusting the site on a sniper scope because you translated a manual on sniper rifles. And I think that that's, that's the tricky part because there are a lot of insidious ways of bringing you in, especially if you're good, uh, more opportunities, longer term contracts. And, and it's, it's, it's uh, something that you have to watch out for because you, Yourself in really nasty situations, doing something you literally did not sign on for. But but here you are. It, it takes a lot of a lot of foresight and a lot of mindfulness to to not fall into that kind of thing. And especially again in in cases like uh, like Colombia, where you have uh, you know uh, if there's if there's like this simmering conflict and there's foreign military advisors. Uh, things can change, and then suddenly there's this big opportunity. There's these conferences, there's meetings, there's trips, and if you're young, especially if you're young, it seems exciting. It's work and it's exciting. And uh, I've spoken to colleagues that 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 that, that get the the zone of, of 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 being in, in the in, in danger, you know, of being in 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 possession of of, of privileged information. And I, I would say don't fall for that.
1: Yep. That's a, an amazing place to end what I think has probably been one of our most one of our deepest, most emotional episodes. We need we need to end on a high note.
4: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We need
1: we need to get we, we need to
3: get the, the the very the very quiet Heldrexel
2: to I think it's just very different. Uh, well, certainly, and I can only speak for myself, but it's certainly very different from my line of work. I mean, we both do interpreting, but it's just so, yeah, just so f- far away from what I do, basically.
3: You're you're mostly what like uh, European Union, that kind of work.
2: Yeah, it's like institutional work.
3: <laughs> I mean, I've done that kind of work as well. But don't you find that uh, sometimes you sit there? and you start to project the consequences of what's being discussed and you're thinking oh my god uh this or that is going to happen or some sort of uh polluting industry is going to be allowed to operate or um movement across borders will be curtailed uh yeah it's it seems very academic but we are actually and and i say this to 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 those who also do text translation We are the great enablers of the world. We are the ones who are converting uh, words into actual public policy. And and I don't think we ever, I think we need to do more things like this. We need to be able to discuss among ourselves, what happens, you know? Yeah, it seems boring. You know, you're there in the booth and they're talking and the, the, the familiarity is droning on and on and on, but there are consequences.
1: That actually reminds me of a paper I'm writing at the moment. I'll be quoting you in that. But it it reminds me, just to finish off, that I've only gotten near um, vicarious trauma twice in my entire career. And the most recent one was for a large church grouping where they were talking about their church's international migration policy. And they had people from senior leaders from all around the world. And they felt very strongly that they shouldn't be deciding how their church was going to help until they'd heard the stories from on the ground. So I interpreted... Um, a leader from an African country who was talking about the effect of his country of successive diseases and then war and then more diseases. And as he tells what he called the censored versions, and I'm working in short consecutive in front of all of these leaders, usually, you know, everyone knows an interpreting shift is, what, 20, 30 minutes. He only spoke for 10 minutes. I sat down for my booth mate and said, can you take the, ne- the next shift? She said, you've still got 10 minutes to go. I said, no, I don't. I don't have ten minutes, and I knew after ten minutes I was, and you know you you keep working until the end of the shift, and then I got to the end of the shift, and thankfully I know someone who's a who trains mental health nurses, and I sent her a message and said, "This is what I'm feeling. What do I do next?" And I had two people: I had my wife, and I had this specialist in mental health nursing that I didn't have to tell them what I'd interpreted, but I just said, "This is where I am. What do I do now?" And I think every interpreter needs True. someone that, you, that they can send the message to say, "This is what I'm feeling." If you can even put a word on it, what do I do now? There's the
3: answer to the question that's been popping up again and again. What do we do? Take the stigma away. I think what 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 happened through Nimsy uh, was important because I started talking to colleagues, and everybody poo-pooed it. No, no, it's not a thing. It's nothing until it is. Until you're. My colleague who was who was looking at, at child porn and, and totally feeling distraught and destroyed and freaked out. She had me to call and I was able to talk to her and console her and 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 take her through it. But it was it was ad hoc. I'm not a mental health professional. So yeah, there, the stigma has to be taken away. It it does. We have to find a way to, 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 to make it maybe more formal, some. Maybe maybe leverage off uh, these technologies where, where you have a, a place where you can, where you can call in uh, to a Zoom meeting and say, I just heard something terrible. I just saw something horrible. You know, what do I do? What do I do? Because you don't have necessarily the people around you
1: who can help. That is, a, I don't think I've heard a better finish for an episode that we've, that we've done. If we can help take away the stigma Job well done.